Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. Well, I'm home all week, so off the road. Uh, that's pretty rare for this time of year, but a break from the wares of travel is always welcome. A few reminders as we get going today. Grading from the inside out, two-day training. That'll be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. Also got that webinar coming up with the Michigan Assessment Consortium. That'll be Wednesday, November 2nd from 1 to 3.30 Eastern Time. It's open to folks outside of Michigan, so if you're interested in that, I've got links in the show notes for both of those events if you're interested. Uh, thanks for tuning in again this week. Big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time, and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Don Harris. Don is the author of Plan Like a Pirate, so we discuss that, but we also discuss her fierce advocacy for anti-racist education. And in Assessment Corner, we have a listener question this week about reassessment, so I'll address that question in that segment. So, that is today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Don Harris is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a letter to society. Now, I know that most, if not all, listeners to this podcast are, in all likelihood, teachers and educators, so I'm probably preaching to the choir. But this just feels like something that needs to be said, and I want to get it out there into the public sphere because it's been on my mind for quite a while now. I also want to say before I begin that I want to approach this in a very measured way because the easiest thing to do would be to get all riled up and start ranting or come off as defensive or fragile. For me, it's neither of those. What I want to do is take a logical approach, you know, just lay out the facts, so to speak. And one more thing, I will say that I think the situation I'm about to talk about is much more dire in the United States than it is in Canada. It's not non-existent in Canada, but I can definitely see some very clear differences between, generally, between the two countries. Okay, so here goes. Dear Society, what did you expect would happen? Now, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, 44% of public schools report teaching vacancies at the beginning of this particular school year. 44%. And more than half of those vacancies are due to resignations. Teachers are leaving the profession at unprecedented rates, and it's not surprising. Educators, but teachers specifically, can only take so much of the relentless onslaught from society. Now don't get me wrong, educators are not above critique. We are answerable to the public for our work, and we are at times a bit defensive in our responses. There's no doubt that we as a profession could be a little more open to a broader dialogue about what is best for society's children. The public does and should have a say in what it wants from a publicly funded education system. Or in the case of a private school, the tuition-paying parents do have a say in the shape and nature of the education that their children experience. We as a profession could be a little bit more aware that we are not the only profession that works long hours. We're not the only profession that works weekends. We're not the only profession that takes work home. Many professionals are in similar situations, and that is what separates a profession from a job. And I understand that, but we're not the only ones, but we are also as, as part of that professional group. But... There is critique, and then there are the relentless attacks on the profession and the people within it. What did you think would eventually happen? The purity tests that you put the education system through is unreasonable, especially educators. It is a test that I suspect the vast majority of parents wouldn't pass either. It's easy to put standards on others that you yourself might not be able to live up to. Now, you have the right to do whatever you want in your home, no question about it. But it may be a good exercise to ask yourself if you could live up to the purity test that you put teachers under 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, I know they are your children, and they are the most important part of your lives. I get that. Many teachers are parents as well. They know that, and they understand that, and that you would do anything for them. But the majority of teachers go into this profession because they care deeply about the education and life chances of all children. We go into this profession to make a difference, to inspire them, to nurture them, to push them, to help them realize their full potential. Now, I know you can point to that one teacher you had when you were young or 
the one teacher that you may have had a grievance with who deserved the criticisms, or maybe they even crossed the line and they deserve to be fired. I know that you can point to that one or those few teachers in the system, but you know what? We can also point to that one parent or that one family or those few families. You probably wouldn't be okay with us casting aspersions on all parents because of one or two examples of parents, would you? My guess is no. So why are we doing that with teachers? When you, for example, within earshot of your children, or even directly at home, relentlessly disrespect your child's teacher in front of them, or disrespect the profession in front of them, what do you think that's going to do? Do you not think it might rub off on your children so that when they go to school, they carry that same level of disdain or disrespect? I mean, the constant demeaning of the profession is going to have an effect. Maybe you don't care, or, or maybe you feel entirely justified in your position. But I ask you again, what did you think was going to happen after all of that? If you have a grievance about a specific incident or an encounter, then that's fair. You as parents and families have the right to be heard, and your concerns need to be taken seriously. But when you approach those encounters thinking teachers have diabolical intentions or are out to get your kid, then that crosses the line. I know there was a little blip in all of this back in 2020. As the pandemic ramped up and everybody swiftly moved to remote learning, there was suddenly this huge upswing in respect for teachers, but that quickly faded. And you, as a society, slipped back into the same old tropes about teachers, education, and hidden political agendas. And, and sure, that may actually be happening in your particular school or district or state or province. But as a society, if we don't collectively shift our views on education, we are going to be left with the education system we deserve. Teachers don't want special treatment. They just want treatment. They just want respect. Respect for the work they do, the contributions they make to society, I know some like to point out, well, you have the summers off, but honestly, I don't know any teacher worth their salt that takes the entire summer off. I do professional learning all summer long, and teachers are there. They're reading, they're learning, they're discussing, they're planning. So many of them are reading over the summer even on their own. They're planning their lessons, thinking about their classroom, how they can make their lessons more engaging. So much happens over the summer. Yes, of course, it's a much more relaxed time, and they can take time off, but it is, in many ways, time earned. Now, according to one article I read in Forbes magazine, now I know there's a lot of statistics out there floating around, but a lot of statistics that you could use and they'd be different. But the one Forbes article I read said that one in four teachers works 60 hours a week or more. And the figure, that figure, they pointed out, has remained constant for about 25 years. They said the average teacher works about 47 hours a week. One in four teachers works the 60 hours a week. One in 10 works more than 65 hours a week. So it might look on paper like teachers only work 10 months of the year, but the hours actually add up. Here's the math. If we say the average teacher works 47 hours a week and we multiply that by 42 weeks, okay? So there, we'll say 40 weeks, right, of 10 months plus an opening week and a closing week where teachers are also required to work in most places. So let's say a teacher works about 42 weeks a year. So 47 hours a week multiplied by 42 weeks is 1,974 hours. Now let's then say that the average professional who's not a teacher has four weeks of vacation time. So that would then say that the average professional works about 48 weeks per year. So you take the 52 minus the 4, 48 weeks per year. So if we take the teacher hours... 1,974, and divide it by 48 weeks, it comes out to 41.125 hours a week. So that means that the average teacher works basically the same hours in a year as any other profession. It just happens to be concentrated, which allows for this big chunk of time off, likely at the most desirable time. But it's not as if teachers don't work the same number of hours. Because as a society, you might not understand that there's two things that happen in teaching that you cannot do simultaneously. You can't teach and plan at the same time. We can't plan while the students are in the classroom. 
So that has to be done on another time. Again, teachers are not looking for extra. They're just looking for the same level of respect as any other profession. Teachers are not above critique, but a level of respect that the profession deserves is warranted. And we as a profession know that we are an easy target. When you in society or businesses or even universities say the schools are failing our kids, there is no way for us to refute that because we can't take a cohort of children, not educate them for 13 years, and then compare the value added from their, the education, the group that was educated. So there's no way to refute the, the assertion that the schools are failing our kids. Now, it's just too easy to say and suggest that everyone in life is being successful in spite of their experience in school or their education. But again, you have the right to think what you want to think. But my question to you is, what did you think was going to happen? Teachers, many of them great teachers, have simply had enough and are no longer going to take it. You wouldn't. So they're leaving. They're leaving your school. They're leaving your district. They're leaving the profession. And schools and districts are going to be facing teacher shortages that are unprecedented. Not everywhere, but it's happening in too many places to not notice. You can't keep shitting on a profession and expect teachers to keep showing up to keep getting shit on. You just can't expect that. You wouldn't do that. Teachers are leaving, and in so many places, they're being replaced by an adult that has no training or teaching skills. You think that's going to lead to higher achievement and, and greater societal outcomes? Nope, it's not. Now, I know people like to use that tired trope, you know, that those who can do and those who can't teach, which is kind of asinine. But it's also interesting when you think about it. You know, when you look at the profession through that lens, if we take the most cynical view, got the summers off, work till three, job is easy, you don't have to know anything. How come everyone isn't lining up to become a teacher if the gig is so sweet? Why aren't they? The thing is, that expression, those who can do and those who can't teach, is absurd. Because teachers can. Teachers have a lot of skills. And they're leaving the profession. It's not like they don't have a lot of options. Daphne Gomez wrote an article also in Forbes magazine last February, talking about how teachers were leaving for a variety of reasons. She cited that teacher burnout and low pay have always been an issue within, within teacher retention. But many teachers have also expressed that they've lost aspects of the profession that they loved during virtual teaching, and, and their district's response to COVID-19 played a big part in their new interest in leaving the profession. But for a large majority of teachers, there is an opportunity now to reevaluate their career path. She says teaching is one of the remaining professions where many see themselves in one role for their entire career. But the last few years, she says, have shown teachers that their skills are valued in a number of different roles, and teachers are starting to realize that their path can be nonlinear, and that they themselves are now able to pivot. This is all too predictable. Well, where are they going? Where are teachers going? Well, according to Gomez, they're going to ed tech companies. They're going to private companies for training and development. They're, they're leading training and development um, aspects of, of the different companies. Educators have also excelled significantly, she says, in roles as office managers and customer success managers and project managers and software engineers and user experience designers. Educators also find themselves working in museums or for nonprofits in a variety of different positions. The thing is, there are options that teachers can explore. And I don't have any data to support this, but it would be my contention that most teachers are leaving the profession reluctantly. Our desire to work with your children is a passion, and many would call it a calling. There's, there's nothing more any of them would want to do, but at some point you can only take so much, especially for what amounts to, in some places in the United States, as some of the most disrespectful and demeaning salary packages there are. I'm grateful that in Canada, I know we all want more, but in Canada, you know, and in many states as well, teachers are well compensated. But there are some places in the United States I'm stunned at the level of disrespect when it comes to teacher salary. No teacher, no teacher, no professional should need a second job to make ends meet and maintain a decent standard of living. 
I mean, teachers knew that teaching was not the pathway to riches. We all knew that when we got into it. But there does come a point where all of the education that's required to become a teacher should come with a level of compensation that matches that. The whole sort of, uh, it's not about the money, it's about the kids, or every dollar to your salary is a dollar taken from your students, is a false dichotomy. We can fund an education system and compensate teachers fairly. But nonetheless, you are entitled to hold the opinion you want to hold as a society. But again, my question, what did you expect was going to happen? It's really a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. You rail against a system relentlessly, which causes so many to leave and so many others not to choose the profession in the first place, which then plunges the system into a bit of disrepair and even in some places chaos where we can't find enough qualified teachers. Then you look at the residual effect of that and say, see, I was right about the education system. But what you're missing is the role that you played in the system's downfall. All of this is a very unfortunate outcome that has emerged over the last number of years. But please, do me one favor. Don't be surprised that it's happening. Joining me today for the interview is Don Harris. As a curriculum specialist, author, and high school educator of the gifted and talented, Don's primary goal is to support educators with planning learning that ignites curiosity and that engages and inspires students in ways that impact their growth and also their achievement every single day. In her many roles, Dawn has taught in urban, rural, and suburban districts, meeting the needs of children from a wide range of backgrounds and wide range of cultures. Uh, Don is the author of the book, Teach, sorry, Planned Like a Pirate, uh, Designing Extraordinary Learning Journeys for Every Student. So that is going to be the focus of our conversation today, Planned Like a Pirate. So Don, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to join you, Tom. It's been a whirlwind, what, weekend, past week, weekend <laughs> for us. Holy cow. So I, I was just going to say, you again. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, like, uh, you know, you and I first met, we did the uh, live event with uh, Julia Raynan and, and Natalie Vardavasso. Uh, and and listeners are familiar with Natalie. She's been on the podcast before, et cetera. Uh, but we did that live uh, about two years ago, I think it was, or something like that. And then you and I had not really had any contact. And then we met each other for the first time at the Teach Better conference this past weekend. And uh, and that was great to meet face-to-face. And now here we are a week later. So uh, <laughs> we're going to have to make this a habit or, a, or a, some sort of pattern that we have going on here. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's always, you know, and it, and it's, it, it is, we, I think both of us were saying this all weekend, which was so nice to meet people face-to-face that you're connected to online and yet you don't know them personally. And then when you meet them personally, it just it just makes that connection uh, a little stronger. So uh, really excited to have you here. Looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, but before we begin, Don, before we begin and, you know, dig into the book, um, can you briefly take us through the journey of your career so far? Like, where did you start your teaching career? Uh, what were the various positions you've held? Uh, tell us about this professional pathway that you've been on and, and take us right up to today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, well, I think so. This year is my 10th year in the classroom. So that's pretty exciting. I think I can now officially call myself a veteran teacher. <laughs> I'm double digits. I think that's all right. I think um, you can. <laughs> but uh, teaching is a second career for me. I spent um, more than 20 years in the private sector in marketing and advertising uh, before becoming an educator. Um, it was just, it was the right time. Um, 2008 came along, had some kind of changes and, you know, everything in 2008, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I had to make some decisions at that point. Was I going to continue in the private sector um, or did I want to make a change in my career? And I really felt like it was time um, to make that move. And um, teaching, I don't know, it was just, it was the right time. It was the, I felt like for me in my life, I had been teaching adults uh, most of my career. Um, in the private sector and sales training and that kind of thing, I thought, you know, I, if I can teach sales reps, I think I can teach kids. <laughs> um, and so it happens, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. But um, in those 10 years, you know, I have been department chair at uh, several schools um, of the English department, um, leading those teams. I work with gifted and talented educators in my district now. I've been um, presenting since I, I came into teaching 
something that was really interesting and I didn't realize as I moved into education is that you all like this weekend, we had the Teach Better conference that, you know, where we were able to connect again. I had no idea when I moved into education that teachers were like that passionate. Like, I don't remember my teachers like being all excited about their professional growth and connecting with other teachers and going out of town for conferences and all that. And so education had really changed a lot at the point in time that I had moved into classroom teaching. And so for me, it was just, you know, so exciting to enter into this field where I really felt like I had control of my own growth as an educator. And so because of that, I've taken on a lot of leadership roles. I've been involved in a lot of different um, district level work, supporting different committees and teams um, in, a, in a range of capacities. And so it's been exciting. I feel like we work in a field where we really get to choose how exciting we make our jobs. And I will tell you, I think mine has been super exciting and getting to add um, the title of author to this has also been very, very exciting. Yeah, that that is always exciting. The process of writing a book, as I've said many times to many authors on this podcast, the process of writing a book is actually really hard. And uh, (laughs) holding the book once it's published is the most incredible feeling. But if anybody thinks that writing a book is easy, it's it is easy in the sense that so many people can do it. It's not one of these things where you need a, a finite skill or you're special, mm-hmm. but it's just the work and you end up just spending so much time with the manuscript that I don't know about you, but I end up hating my books after they're done because I'm just so sick of reading it. Like I'm so over what I wrote like over the last year. Anyway, uh, but congratulations on the book. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's fantastic and, and really uh I want you to tell us a little bit about where it came from. I obviously made the mistake in the in the intro saying teach like a pirate because obviously this comes, you know, it's based on Dave Burgess's, you know, very well-known book, Teach Like a Pirate. Your book is called Plan Like a Pirate. So, so for those listeners who aren't familiar with the pirate acronym, uh, first, can you help just listeners understand what does that mean? And second of all, what was the inspiration for you to write this book kind of based on that acronym or based on Dave's work? Where did that all come from? How did the book come together for you? Yeah, it's such an awesome story. Um, but let's just look first at this this whole idea of what does it mean to be a pirate teacher, right? So Dave yeah. in Teach Like a Pirate, he writes about um, these five, five, six different components, excuse me, <laughs> of becoming <laughs> a pirate teacher. We've got passion, um, uh, you know, being a passionate teacher and just then immersing yourself in and your students in good quality teaching and then developing that rapport with these students and even if we look beyond just you know our students in the classroom how are we developing a rapport with other educators or peers to help us grow in our work um we think about asking and analyzing, asking questions and then analyzing the things that are going on in the class and not just even asking our students questions and analyzing what they say, but evaluating our own self. Like what questions do we need to ask ourselves as um, an educator? And our goal in all of this is really to transform and to create this transformation in the classroom that um, really helps students to become the best versions of themselves and to grow in the classroom space that we create. And all of that through, if you know Dave Burgess at all, (laughs) through a whole lot of enthusiasm, right? We have to be enthused about what it is that we are doing in the classroom every day with kids. Um, They see it. They see us. They hear us. We are models for them of, you know, how we should engage with one another. And the interesting thing is way back in 2012, when I became a teacher, was actually when Dave wrote the book, um, Plan Like a, excuse me, Teach Like a Pirate. You and I are getting <laughs> both mixed like up. A when he wrote Teach Like a Pirate. Um, and it was actually the following year um, when I discovered these conferences, right, that uh, we teachers attend, I actually got to see Dave um, speaking. And I was like, what is this? So who is this person? What is this thing going on here? Yeah. Um, you know, of course, I was very captivated. If you've seen Dave speak, you know, and heard him um, in any way um, talk to teachers, it's just it is such a joy, um, and he is so energizing and inspiring. So I clearly got the book, read the book. Um, I thought about that and just embodied, embraced, and tried to embody what that was. Um, and so as I continued on this journey and realized, you know, I, I really can take what I'm doing in the classroom, I can share it with other people, I can write about it, you know, 
our practice is something that we, um, you know, we should pour ourselves into. Um, we should be willing to share what we know, how we've grown. And so with that, then um, I, I decided to write this book and it was just before <laughs> um, COVID. I had put some thoughts down and jotted down kind of, you know, uh, a little kind of a mini book, I guess, not all of a book, but some yeah. of a book and going into uh, COVID, getting online, connected with some other educators. Um, I, I crossed paths with Shelly Burgess. Um, she and I became connected along with Beth Huff and Tracy, Tracy Browder. We started doing work in the lead like a pirate um, educator and leader network. And as a result, Plan Like a Pirate was born. And mm -hmm. it really came from the idea that teaching like a pirate is something that we should all strive to do, right? We want to embed those elements of pirate teaching into um, our work every day, but we have to plan for it. It doesn't just happen. I always say, you know, great teaching doesn't ha happen by accident. It starts with a really good plan. And, you know, some of the best planners are the best teachers. And from that, then um, playing like a pirate really just builds on the idea of this is who pirate teachers are. And this is how we get there. What are the things that we need to include in our everyday planning to make teaching great in the classroom? Right. So it's about being intentional. It's about making yeah. sure that if we want to embody the spirit of all that sort of Dave has written in the book, then it's it's your contention that we can be very purposeful and plan for it rather than just hoping it'll happen or hoping we become that as a teacher, that we plan for it in that purposeful way. Is that right? Is that the way you, you see it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very, very much so. And specific steps, you know, and taking all of the things that Dave um, invites us into in the classroom, but saying, how do we get there? What are those kind of you know, parts and pieces that we have to put together to create, you know, passionate students and immerse our students in the content, but also help them, you know, to, to kind of create this sense of excitement and joy around that building relationships. How do, how do we take the plans we have and create pirate teaching from that? Yeah. And I, and I love that because I have always been one, uh, well, I should say always, you know, early in my career, I was just getting my feet wet, but, but for the majority of my career, I've been one to always think to myself, leave nothing to chance you know, be very intentional about the steps you take or the work you do. And, and, and you do have to be adaptable. So you can't just plan to sort of to the T into every second, but you can be intentional about the kinds of culture you want to create, the kinds of experiences you want to embed your students in and the way that you can sort of engage them in all that, all of that work. Now we have been relentlessly conditioned to be student-centered, but something you wrote in the book really caught my attention. Uh, and I, I want to see if you can expand on this. You said great teaching begins with you. So we've been conditioned to, to put students at the center, but you're actually saying that it begins with the teacher. It begins with them. That's where great teaching begins. So can you expand on that? What do you, what do you mean by that? Why, why, why is that important for us to plan like a pirate, if you will? Right. And, and I think that really just comes from the idea that if we, <clears throat> we can expect our kids to be great in the classroom, if we aren't taking steps to make sure that we're really great at what we do ourselves, how do we think about um, putting learning together for kids? What is it that we're seeking out? How do we, um, you know, research the methods, the strategies, the things that we're going to use in the classroom? You know, how forward thinking are we? Do we know our students, you know, to be, as you say, intentional and, you know, very deliberate about getting to know our students, about knowing our content, about feeling good about ourselves as educators, you know, taking steps to develop ourselves and to grow ourselves um, is really important. And if we don't pour into ourselves, then we can't expect students also to kind of pour into themselves and to grow uh, as well. And, and I, I mentioned earlier, you know, our kids see us, they see how excited we are about the learning. They see um, the attention that we give, you know, I share with my kids, uh, you know, all the time, uh, what I'm doing, continuing my education further all the time, writing, you know, what I'm sharing with other educators, they see us, um, they see the things that we do, we should be sharing those things with them so that they know, and I, I tell my kids this, I want to be better so that I can bring experiences to you that are going to help make you better. Our classes should always be student centered. You know, student student led learning is the best learning. But that doesn't mean that we just, you know, hand kids a workbook or a worksheet and say, hey, here you go. 
you know, do it yourself, right? We plan an experience for them. You know, it's kind of like if you compare it to being on a ship, right? A, a cruise ship, for example, somebody's worked really hard to put this event together for you, this whole experience that you just get on the ship and you go. It's all about you. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And you walk away with this amazing memory of the whole thing. But that doesn't mean that somebody wasn't working really hard to make that experience fabulous for you. And that's what um, I think really great teachers do every day. It seems, um, you know, the work that teachers do is, is pretty much invisible to kids. They're just in there working, going about their business, learning all these wonderful things and um, not realizing that a lot of time and energy and care and love has really been poured into those lessons that we've designed for them. Yeah, it's, it, it is that whole idea of, you know, putting being student centered doesn't necessarily mean that you ignore yourself and you ignore, um, you know, how you can nurture your own self, because I think even whether it's personal care, self care, whether it's professional in terms of how we nurture our own professional curiosity, that just makes us better in the classroom with our students. If, if we sort of, in some respects, model what it is that we want from our students, if we want our students to be curious, then, you know, we have to model some of that curiosity. If we want them to take risks, then, then like you, you had said, you know, writing books, writing blog posts, being, being sort of public with your journey as an educator. I think that sends a, a really strong message to students for sure. I, I love this as well. You, you, you talk about teachers being CEOs, the chief engagement officer. I thought that was very clever. And, uh, and that our job is to, you write, quote, create a clear path to engagement for all students. So how do we do that, Don? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good question, right? That's a million dollar uh, question. Well, right, tell it, us how we is. do that. It is. And yeah. really what we're talking about here is just this um, setting up a learning uh, environment for students that allows them to easily access learning. And that means establishing routines in the classroom, having clear channels of communication open between families and caregivers and students. You know, it's kind of like this communication triangle. It's about um, developing tiered learning plans so that all students can access um, the learning. It's, you know, we, I think a lot of times um, teachers sometimes feel like they have to entertain students, right? Mm -hmm. Like. We, the only way that we can captivate a student or to keep a student engaged is to provide something that's going to be entertaining for them. And in actuality, it goes back to that whole idea of how have I planned learning so that every student can access the information that they need. They know how to self-advocate. There are routines set up in the classroom that allow them to, whether it's working their way physically through the classroom and where to find things, um, the materials and resources they need, or they understand how to access something digitally, there the barriers have been removed so that all students either know how to access what it is they need, or they know who to ask or how to ask for what it is that they need. Um, it, it's just important for us to, to do that, to really just keep that, that kind of classroom ship operating. It's, it's yeah. giving students a way to feel empowered so that they can be engaged. So I'm a science teacher, Don. I have curated all of this engaging activities. I've I've done everything that Don Harris advises me to do in the book. And my students look at me and say, Mr. Shimmer, I don't like science. I have no interest in science. Um, what's the answer to that? How do we how do we talk about how do we sort of cultivate engagement when a student just says to you, I have no interest in this. I, I don't care about science. And, and science teachers out there, I'm not picking on you. They can just <laughs> as easily say that about history or math or any other Absolutely. subject. So, but, you know, I don't care about science. I'm, you know, so what, what, what do you think from your perspective is, is the way to approach that? Yeah, I think this is really about getting to know students and understanding where their stories, their interests, their passions meet the content. In what ways can we use um, students' interests, um, students' background knowledge, um, their lived experiences, the, you know, the things that they enjoy, how can we work to tie that to the content? And we should be doing that because if we say, you know, like we, we 
want to work to make sure that every student is able to, to engage with our content and the material that we provide them and they're not, you know, we can't just say, well, that kid doesn't like science or, you know, I'm just going to have him do it anyways. I know you don't like it, but you got to do it. Those aren't the kinds of conversations we should be having. The kinds of conversations we should be having with students are, well, why don't you tell me about, um, you know, something interesting in your life related to science. Tell me about something you've experienced in the past in nature. Tell me about a science experiment that you did in elementary school that was either great or that was awful or, you know, get kids talking about the content so they can give you some idea of where you need to begin with planning, right? We can't plan one kind of uh, learning segment that is going to meet the needs of every student. We have to be able to tailor that and getting as much upfront information about students as possible is going to help us to be able to do that, getting to know our learners. And the more that we know, the more we engage students in learning, you know, the more we learn about our students, the easier it is to plan. It's like this big cycle. If we're gaining information all the time about our students, we can tweak the learning for them. The next time we learn even more about them. And before long, that's when the students are leading the learning. We've gotten this information and can tailor these experiences, personalize these experiences for them in the classroom so that they can really just take the learning and run with it. I love that. I love the idea of asking them because it's possible they say to you, um, I have no interest in science. Maybe that's the way they've been taught science in the past and the types of, um, you know, um, activities that they had or didn't have, or the, you know, they may not know uh, a lot about what they're curious about, or if we can, if we can bring the, the learning to them and and cultivate that, then maybe they find a spark and a curiosity. Again, students aren't going to have a passion about everything in any no. sub, in every subject, Mm-mm. but we've got to tap into that curiosity. I love the fact to ask them, find out what's in the background. Like, why don't you? People say, oh, I hate science. Well, that doesn't mean they hate science. They might think, I don't like the way I've been taught science over the years and I, that it's not been engaging to me. And it's been a lot of just sort of memorization and rote kind of learning. So I love the, I just love the idea of, of speaking to them um, on that level to find out how you can meet them where they are. Right. Love that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I, you know, the, the book, I, mean, I don't want to necessarily, you know, spoil it for everyone. The book is filled with great strategies, but before we, um, we finish up, Don, I do want to shift gears here a little bit, because I, I also know one thing I do know about you is that you are, I want to talk a little bit about anti-racist education, because I know you are a fierce proponent and advocate for that. And so I'm going to ask you a two-part question, just generally, and you can take this in any direction you want to. Um, but I'm going to begin with the negative, and then we're going to finish up with the positive. Okay. So the first question is, from your perspective, I mean, we are two years out from 2020, and of course, the pandemic, but we also Remember George George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, so so many things that sparked a sort of renaissance. It's not new, but we know we had a kind of a renaissance with anti-racist sort of anti-racist movement in society, including within education. So my first question to you is this: What has you most? Here we are in 2022. What has you most pessimistic, or or even somewhat agitated? about where we are with anti-racist education right now? Um, well, you know, I, I feel like right now we've hit a little bit of a wall. You know, okay. we, we were uh, making some really good progress, and I think many of us continue to do the work. There are so many educators in their classrooms, leaders in their districts who are champions of this work, and that is so important, and we are so lucky to have folks doing that work. But we're coming, you know, a lot of us have been referring to this as coming out of COVID and trying to discover what is this new normal that we're going to exist in um, from this point moving forward. Um, And I would just say we have to make sure that we are including anti-racism in that. And I know, um, you know, as of late, there's been a lot of political discussion about anti-racism education and what it really is and, and, you know, folks calling it what it is not. Um, so we have to figure out how we continue to move forward in the work, whether it's in our individual classrooms, um, or whether it's as districts and leaders really being the ones stepping out in courage and leading teachers through that work. But we also need to make sure that we're doing it the right way. And, and when I say that, I think any step that an educator or leader can make and, and leading folks through 
um, anti-racist teaching and learning is important, but we still also have to be very careful. There are a lot of individuals in our school buildings who have have been and continue to suffer from trauma related to um, you know racism and you know discrimination and such. And we need to be careful with that. We need to make sure that we understand what our implicit biases are and how we are um, acknowledging and seeing um, the individuals that we serve. And so I don't know that it's necessary, necessarily something I'm feeling pessimistic or agitated about, but we need to keep just do keep doing this work. It's not, you know, the problem um, is not going to go away if we don't continue to focus on um, what's important. We can we can look at anti-racism within our curriculum and be very intentional about how we address systemic and structural racism um, in our content area um, and, and be um, the kind of disruptors to systems that um, bring about the change that we need. We need to help our students understand how to do this, um, but we have to keep going. And right now, I think What's most probably frustrating for me is that we're in, it feels like we're in a holding pattern and we can't, we can't be doing that. You said two things that I want to pick up on that I'm hoping you can just briefly expand on. You said um, there's people calling it what it's not. Can you give us an example of where anti-racist education is being called something that it is not? Yeah, I think this is really just related to the discussion surrounding critical race theory. Right. You know, there's just so much, it's, it's such, it's been so politicized unfortunately. And so you have uh, in many districts um, where folks are just speaking out um, very openly against um, anti-racism education. And I would say this, you know, anti-racism education um, is really about helping students to understand the systems that are in place that um, really inherently work against um, individuals um, who, you know, are, are either othered or perceive the minority mm-hmm. um, and not to take away from, um, from someone else, except to say, let's understand together that there are people in this country who um, are perceived as less than and the systems treat them as such. Right. Um, but that has been taken and has been twisted by people who don't understand truly what anti-racism education is and are using, you know, just strategies, tactics, let's say, um, that are taking away from the importance of anti-racism education. Right. I think you answered my second question there when I was going to say you picked, uh, you said we have to go about the work the right way. Mm -hmm. And I think you sort of articulated that in terms of what what we need to cultivate within our students to understand uh, the work that, that lays ahead. Would it, would it be safe to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, I get the sense maybe that you would have anticipated that we would be further along in 2022 than we are collective. I know that's a very general no. statement, but yeah, no, 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 would no. that be a fair assertion? I think here's what I, I think I would have hoped is that we were focusing. And I think we are, I think we are focusing um, on building more bridges than creating more divides. And I think sometimes if we go about um helping students to understand racism and how to become advocates and allies and and actively anti-racist. It's more about building bridges um, than creating divides. And if we're not careful, then we can create divides. And that's what some people are just waiting to prey on. Yeah, they're waiting to prey on it. And sometimes you have the, the worst examples on any side of an issue poor implementation, poor articulation of goals can lead to people misunderstanding what the work is all about. Okay. Enough, enough about that. (laughs) Let's, let's flip it. And I want to ask you the exact same question, but on the opposite side, what has you most optimistic or even energized? Like where, where do you see uh, with the anti-racist educational movement, where are you optimistic or energized about what's happening? I am energized uh, about the number of people who are um, just taking on anti-racism education and being fierce advocates and allies and, you know, becoming part of school communities, supporting school communities in the work where school communities are struggling. I'm, pr- 
proud of all of the educators and leaders who are stepping out in courage and saying, you know what, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I know that I have people that I can rely on that can guide me in the right direction, that can answer my questions to see people who are saying, you know what, I know this situation isn't right. Um, I'm not quite sure what I need to do about it. I know there are people who I can go to for support and I'm going to do it. And that's what's super exciting. Just the, um, on the flip side of, you know, the, 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 the opponents of anti-racism education, there are so many people that are saying, you know what, I'm, I'm doing this. I, I don't care, you know, what people say, or if I don't have everybody with me at this point in time, I'm going to be the one who's going to step out and courage and start doing this work, even when no one else is. It's always an interesting dance when we look at any sort of issue, but I think it's magnified with anti-racist education in the sense that we spend our time looking both out the windshield and the rearview mirror. Like at some point we have to say, look how far we've come. And then at the same time we look and say, look how far we still have to go. And and that bouncing back and forth between that I know is sometimes exhausting for, for folks, but it's, it's almost as when I look at it, I think to myself, boy, we have really made some tremendous progress over the last couple of years, but boy, do we still have a long way to go uh, in terms of where things just become that new normal in terms of how we examine the systems and, and, and the underpinnings of our system that have created these dis disparities in, in the system. Those who are, as you said, you know, racialized, otherized uh, mm -hmm. students in our school system who really just want uh, the same opportunity as everybody else. And, and uh, so appreciate the work that you do. And I know you are very active in that work. And for listeners, if you don't know that, um, Dawn is definitely a champion for this work. So I appreciate that. Three questions left, Dawn, as we finish up today. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. So uh, these are uh, questions that we're going to run through. Here's the first one. And again, you can take this in any direction you want to, but the question is quite simply, and, and maybe it's related to the last conversation we had, but educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Ah, oh, what keeps me up at night? Um, I think right now it's just um, the level of teacher tired that exists out there. Mm -hmm. Is I worry about um, teachers, uh, our ability to just kind of um, maintain this. This it's not even that the work is more difficult. It's just teachers are tired coming out of COVID, yeah. and I, I, I fear sometimes, you know, if too many teachers lose that kind of passion that they have for their work, if they lose the desire to grow themselves professionally, um, you know, they, they leave, you know, we have a lot of teachers who are leaving the profession now. What does that look like in the, in the next five years, if our um, pool of, of veteran high, highly qualified teachers leave the profession, if they decide that they're not as energized or as motivated about the work, you know, I get a little nervous about this whole term now that's going around of quiet quitting. Um, that's going to have a tremendous impact on our profession. Um, you know, I, I hope that we can continue to provide teachers with the kind of um, work environment the kinds of cultures, the support internally in the school system and externally from our communities that are going to keep them um, excited about being in the classroom and working to grow kids. We all love our kids. We all care about our kids. Um, but right now, I know there are a lot of teachers in a lot of places in this country that are just simply worn out after all that we've been through for the last couple of years. Yeah, it's, it is... Um... It is relentless in some places. The the um, the, the way teachers are are just the, the the external pressure and and not to mention um, some of the commentary that that is out there for sure. It it, it wears people down, and yeah. you kind of it, it's something that we we have to it, it's it has to be addressed for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, question two is the second question before we finish up is about success. You can talk about personal success. You can talk about professional success. You can take, again, any direction you want to with this. But if a random person stopped you on the street and said, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? I would probably ask them, um, well, I don't know. What is that thing that 
when you think about or when you're doing it that you just can't quit smiling? Like, what is that thing that brings you joy? Because it's different for everyone, you know, success. Um, it just simply is not the same for some people. It may be wealth and having a lot of material things, but for other people, it may be um, just getting up in the morning and being able to do that thing that makes you smile every day. Um, I think success, success is, is, it's just relative to the individual and um the things that they have experienced in their life that have given them the tools and the resources they need to go out and just kind of cultivate and create those things that make them happy and bring them joy. Yeah. yeah I, lo I, lo I lo love that idea of just doing something that makes you smile and, yeah. and you can't stop smiling and you know, you're in that. We all know what that zone feels yeah. like, right? We're yeah, just like, absolutely. this is, this is what I meant to do now. Uh, final question, uh, Don, is just something I added last week. It's a new twist on finishing up uh, because I love food and uh, fashion myself as a bit of an amateur foodie. I wouldn't say I'm like the obnoxious foodie, but I'm but I feel like I am a little bit. And you live in Springboro, Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to know from you, where, where's the best place to eat in Springboro, Ohio? So we have a fantastic little and I mean little pizza place. Um, it's just a couple of blocks over from my house. It's called Roma's and it is authentic Italian food, pizza, calzones, um, chicken yeah. parm, um, garlic knots. Like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, and the family who runs um, the restaurant, they travel um, back to Italy often. So, you know, they're I don't know if they're bringing recipes or what, but the recipes they have are fantastic. The food is great. My yeah. favorite is the calzone. The okay. cheese is just so thick and gooey. And oh, now it's making me want some. I think I'm going to have Romas for dinner. Yeah, Tom. we might have to. I might have to come out to Springboro. Uh, the, I, I am a sucker for the calzone. It is interesting. I may have to change this question because I introduced this question last week with Joe Feldman asking the question about where the best place to eat in Oakland, California was. Oh. And he brought up pizza. Oh man! So it might just be where's the best pizza <laughs> where you live. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> we'll see. We'll question. see. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Uh, but that that calzone sounds uh, mm. delicious. So delicious. Uh, <laughs> if I ever get to Springboro, uh, the calzones are on me, Don. Uh, <laughs> listeners, you definitely can and should follow Don on social media, Twitter and Instagram. The handles are the same. It's at d harris e d s. Uh, those are Twitter and Instagram. You'll find Don on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes for all of those social media accounts. Also, her website, www.educationundone.com, uh, where you get tons of information about Dawn, her writing, uh, the work she does. Uh, you get lots of information there. And Dawn, you are on this platform called, that I'd never heard of before. It's called Wakelet. So uh, I checked it out. But tell listeners, what is, what is you see, uh, you know, as listeners, I need another social media account. Uh, what is Wakelet? Oh, Wakelet is a fantastic tool. It's just a digital curation tool. You can create collections in there. Um, I use it with my students for uh, designing their passion projects. You can add um, all sorts of um, digital kinds of resources in there. It will um, accept PDF files, web links, YouTube videos. Um, you can post tweets and Facebook posts in there. Um, it's just a really great place if you're if you are looking for um, a platform to just assemble any and all kinds of digital media. Wakelet is the perfect place for that. And I use Wakelet as um, my, I don't know, digital kind of footprint, um, yeah, if yeah. you will. And so I have a Wakelet that I keep a lot of things in that just really tell folks what my journey has been professionally, right. where I've been um, spending time with other folks, what kind of projects I'm into and so forth. But I also have Wakelets that are several that are related to anti-racism education. I have lots of Wakelets that include um, my tweets um, and uh, Twitter chats from the Lead Like a Pirate chat, which I'm an active part of every Saturday morning on Twitter at 1030 a.m. Eastern. So there's all sorts of stuff out there. Um, and it's just a really fun and creative way to keep things, digital files and such that are really important to you. It's a fabulous tool. Great for the classroom, any classroom, any age level. Fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. So listeners can both check out your Wakelet 
and then maybe decide to sign up on their own. Uh, this could be my second sort of account. I signed up for Be Real earlier this year. And listeners, oh, you remember yeah. me talking about Be Real. <laughs> and uh, yeah. that was one. And I tried to get, I wanted to be ahead of the curve on it. Um, so Wakelet, I'd never heard about that before, but uh, I am a sucker for uh, some of this stuff. So I appreciate it. You have to let um, me know how you like it. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. Don, uh, really great to see you again. Great yeah. to see you last weekend. Great to see you this time. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Really, really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, we have a listener question, and this question comes from Aaron. Aaron is a high school assistant principal in Colorado, and Aaron writes this, I'd love to get your thoughts on the best ways to offer repeated opportunities to demonstrate mastery in the classroom. One suggestion I've heard is focusing on the big rocks of the curriculum rather than trying to retest every standard taught. Would that be your advice as well? The teachers are just looking for a way to give students many opportunities to demonstrate their learning, but they want to make an efficient system as well. Okay. So a couple things. I, 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 there's a number of different ways that we're going to approach this, and we're going to take a slightly different angle on the question because contextually we're talking about a high school. So middle school, elementary school, I might answer this slightly differently. Just because at the high school level, we still are typically producing an overall grade for a class and uh, because of college transcripts and athletic eligibility. The focus on efficiency is important, but the focus on effectiveness also needs to be there. So one of the undercurrents of all of this is to make sure that any reassessment opportunity is preceded by more learning. We, we don't want this to devolve into, uh, hey, come in tomorrow and guess differently. Like that's not what reassessment is. Reassessment is a continual learning process that allows us to re-verify. Okay, we're talking high school. Now, I, I actually agree with Aaron's statement about focusing on the big rocks. As much as I'd like to live in the orthodoxy of being able to reassess everything all the time, that is simply not plausible for most classroom teachers. Most classroom teachers are busy. We know that. I mean, everybody's busy. I don't know a teacher on this planet that's not busy. So busy is not a reason or an excuse. Reassessment is such a critical part because it is our mandate to help all learners reach high levels of performance. So if you are struggling with finding the time, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, we've got to ask ourselves a very tough question, which is, what am I prepared to stop doing to make room for something so critical? Okay, so reassessing every single standard multiple times is not plausible for classroom teachers. So if we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck when it comes to reassessment, I would definitely spend more time reassessing the big rocks and or the high priority standards, right? This is one of the real advantages to prioritizing your standards. As I've said many times before, prioritizing your standards is not a predetermination that there are certain standards that we're not going to cover. It is a way to organize your standards. So should an instructional decision be made about time or assessment, then we're organized to make those decisions in a more thoughtful way, right? So if you need an extra week to make sure students reach uh, proficiency with a high priority standard, you're going to take that extra week and you would take that time from your lower priority standards. So again, by saying some standards are a high priority, we are by default saying that some are of a lesser priority, right? So if push comes to shove, I'll spend less time reassessing the lower priority standards. Now, back in episode 82, to, to add on to this thought, I talked about synthesizing standards, about how it's important to bring the standards together for robust, engaging demonstrations of learning. If we try to cover each of our standards separately, like a checklist, one at a time, we are not going to have enough time. The advantage of prioritizing your standards is that other standards become the underpinnings of the prioritized standards, right? So standards are always grouped and they're clustered under particular headings. And so within those headings, you're going to see the prioritization, right? So if we look, for example, at high school math and specifically functions, we know that that the in, in the Common Core, functions are organized under four headings, interpreting functions, uh, building functions, there's linear, quadratic, and exponential models, and then there's trigonometric functions, right? Those are the four big headings or big ideas. Now, interpreting functions, there's three standards or priority standards, if you will. Understand the concept of a function and use a use function notation, interpret functions that arise in applications in terms of context, analyze functions using different representations. And each of the, I'm not going to go through all of them, but each of them has a handful, two or three uh, bullet points under each. 
And each of those bullet points actually has even finer points. So each of those bullet points would have one, two, three, or four standards underneath them, right? So if you keep drilling down, you can get to a level of granularity. But realistically, is it plausible for a teacher to assess each of those finer points multiple times? Probably not. So what I would try to focus on are the clusters, right? You're going to have to assess the minutia for sure and drill down formatively because those are the building blocks for students to be able to meet those standards. But so for example, if we if we have the one standard under the heading building functions, there's build a function that models a relationship between two quantities. That's what I would focus on. I wouldn't focus on the finer points underneath that because all of those finer points are going to be built into the student's demonstration to build a function. They'll be built into it. So you don't really have to reassess that. Use those granular points formatively because we have to determine the student's understandings and misunderstandings along their learning progression and, and what skills need attention. But when it comes to grading, pull the standards back together and begin to synthesize them into that one sort of big idea under that heading. And, and of course, if you teach a different subject, just think of the equivalent, right? Take a clue from how your standards are organized and think about ways that you can pull things together. Now, at the high school level, again, we are often asked to determine a singular overall grade for an entire subject. So there's already a level of synthesizing and combining that's going to happen. So I would want to look at things more holistically. I'd want to know the student's overall level, for example, with interpreting functions, building functions, linear quadratic and exponential models, and trigonometric functions. I would want to know their overall level with each of those subheadings, right, and try to synthesize it together. If you had an overall grade or level for each of those and then combine them to determine a final grade, you'd actually have all of the detail that you would need to put in from a grading perspective. Remember, if you're talking instruction and formative assessment, we pull apart and we drill down to levels of granularity. But if we're talking about grading and determining you know, overall grades or summative assessment, summative determinations, we can think more holistically. Again, this is what I would do. You, you can do it differently. And I'm not suggesting that the way I'm describing it here is the only way that it can be done. I don't even know if it's the only way it should be done. What I'm offering, Aaron, as an answer here is how I would do it. This is what I would do. So inside each of those overarching headings, you have the bullet points, as I talked about, that I would probably focus reassessment on those bullet points rather than one more level down. Those finer points that make up the minutia of each of those bullet points, to me, those are more formative in nature. We're going to pull those together for those bullet point standards under each of the headings. Again, this is what this would be for a high school where the combination of standards is often necessary to produce that overall grade. When you start to realize and notice that some standards are embedded in other standards, then you'll have a lot of overlap in assessment because some standards will be part of the reassessment of the higher priority standard, right? So I, I'm not pretending to be a, a, a high school math teacher here, but the idea of building a function that models a relationship between two quantities, build new functions from existing functions, that to me is, it sounds like a lot of overlap in the demonstration of learning. So there's, there's ways that you build into it. Understand the concept of a function under interpretation and then interpret the functions, analyze the functions. Well, here's the deal. If you focused on analyzing functions using different representations, in your analysis, you will see whether or not the student understands the concept of a function and is able to interpret the function. Because in order to analyze a function, I'm gonna to have to be able to understand it and I'm gonna to have to be able to interpret it. So if I'm looking at interpreting functions, have them focus or prioritize the analyzing of functions, therefore the understanding and the interpretation become the underpinnings. That's what I mean when I say synthesizing our standards, okay? So, we, like I said, one of the biggest mistakes I think we make with standards is thinking each and every standard that is listed, especially, you know, those in the minutiae, are on equal footing or of equal value. They're not. Just think of your standards as, as rules to any game. Think of them as the rules to the game, right? So some of the rules are in play all of the time during any sport or any event, right? Well, other rules are only enacted in finite conditions. So for example, in basketball, the rules about timing uh, are in play throughout the entire game, but the rules about flagrant fouls are only in play when a flagrant foul occurs. All the rules matter, but the rules around timing are going to be more relevant because they're going to be constantly present during the game. So if time is a factor, 
and and of course when when isn't time a factor um, I would work on pulling standards together into robust demonstrations of learning that illustrate where students are with multiple standards, or at least the bigger, broader categories of the big rocks that then allow you to synthesize up to an overall grade. I, 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 know, I know this sounds somewhat complicated, and, and I'm not trying to make it more complicated than it should be, but if we're assessing on fewer, more clearly discernible levels, then the decision about the degree to which a student understands the learning within each of the categories is not really that complicated um, for a for an expert math teacher or an expert science teacher, it would be for a layman, but but not for someone who has an expertise. So for me, focus on the big rocks, the big ideas, and you'll have a much more reasonable time with reassessment. And remember, uh, mastery or excellence does not mean perfection. Okay, it means a deep, thorough, or sophisticated understanding of the standards, but it doesn't mean perfection. Let's not suggest that you have to be perfect in order to reach that top tier. So with the clear distinction, as I said, between fewer levels of performance, the distinctions between levels of understanding for each student are not that difficult for a teacher with an expertise in their field to determine. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com, if you've got questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder to check the show notes for links uh, for the upcoming professional learning events I mentioned earlier uh, in the episode. Next week, my guest will be Dave Schmidt. Uh, Dave is the co-author of the book, Poking the Bear, A Guide for Engaging in Conversations That Matter the Most. So that will be the focus of our conversation next week. Dave is also a big part of the Teach Better team. So looking forward to uh, that conversation with Dave. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast reach. And of course, if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.